If you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Hebrews 9 and hold your place there, uh, we will turn to the text here in a few minutes. There are two ways to take a trip, uh, whether a vacation, a business trip, whatever it is. What, here's one way. Uh, plan it all yourself. You make the reservations, you make all the travel arrangements, you decide where you're going to eat. If it's a vacation, you decide on all the different things you're going to see and do, all the different attractions uh, that you're going to uh, visit, and you arrange yourself for all of the logistics involved in such a trip. The other way to do it is to let someone else do all of that stuff and you just go along for the ride, relying on them and benefiting from all their planning uh, and, and efforts. There are some things in life that I think I'm pretty good at. Perhaps some of you have assessed that it's a very short list, but there are some things that I at least think I'm good at in life, but planning trips, especially vacations, uh, has never been one of those uh, things. I, I usually feel like trips that I plan once I'm on the trip, once my family is on the trip, at least half of it is spent figuring out how to do things we want to do, where to go, how to get around, and all of those kind of things that I thought I had planned beforehand, but I just had not planned very well. It turned out that my plan was just not uh, a very great plan. I've taken a few trips, not many, uh, but a few trips where Michelle and I would, uh, you know, take a trip with someone else, and, and they were people who pretty much had planned the trip, and we were just along for the ride. And I much preferred that, because they seemed to be much better uh, at it. And so I just did what they said, went where they said, and, and it was a good thing. So for me, when it comes to taking a trip, going on a journey... Uh, I prefer to rely on someone else to do the work of planning, to lead the trip, and I just go along for the ride. Today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28, and we're going to see there a basic itinerary of the journey that every single human being travels throughout their lives. And here, I'll give you a sneak peek, here is the itinerary of the journey of every person on earth. Life, death, judgment. That's, that's, where, that's where we're all going. We're in the middle of life. It's leading to death. It'll lead to judgment. We were all feeling happy just a minute ago, weren't we? And what we're going to find here in a few minutes is that when it comes to this journey that we're all on, it's much better to go with the plan that someone else has already developed. It's much better to go with the plan that someone else has already done the work and prepared for. It's much better to re rely on them and their efforts regarding the journey, and we just go along for the ride. Let me be more specific. It's much better for us to just follow the plan that Christ has laid out. Because here's the thing, the journey that we are on, Christ has not just planned it out, but he has already taken the journey ahead of us. And so the way to get maximum benefit and enjoyment for the trip that we are on is to rely on what Jesus has done, the preparations that he's made for us. And we just 
go along for the ride. We're not going to cover the entire ninth chapter as we've done with each other chapter up to this point, but I do encourage you to read chapter nine this week. I, I want to just mention a few things that you'll find there if you uh, read it. Much of chapter 9 makes points that have already been made numerous times throughout Hebrews and even as recently as uh, last week. And the points made in much of chapter 9 are also summarized in the verses that we're going to look at today, at least uh, generally. Verses 1 through 10 give interesting detail about the Old Testament tabernacle, which I think you'll find very interesting to read. And it's shared largely for the purpose of pointing out that the Old Covenant emphasized the distance that exists between God and man, and that the Old Covenant could not clear the consciences of sinful people. And so as you read verses 1 through 10, you read about uh, the tabernacle, keep in mind that that's what it's demonstrating. There was distance between God and man, and the Old Covenant could not clear the consciences of sinful people. And then as you go through verses 11 through 23, what you find is that it's contrasting the earthly tabernacle with the true heavenly tabernacle, noting over and over again how the new is better than the old. The new covenant is better than the old, which the whole book of Hebrews has been emphasizing. It it makes points like this. The new covenant has better sacrifices because the old covenant was the sacrifices were the blood of bulls and goats. and the New Covenant, the sacrifice is the blood of Jesus. It makes points like that the New Covenant uh, didn't cover, I'm sorry, the New Covenant just covered over sin. The old, I can't talk today. The Old Covenant just covered over sins for a year, but the New Covenant uh, offers eternal redemption. It, it makes points like the New Covenant does what the Old Covenant never could and it clears people's consciences from the guilt of sin. The new covenant completely sets us free from sin. We have been ransomed from sin. And a really interesting thing you'll find in in that section, if you read through it, is in verse 15, which makes the point that the new covenant of which Christ is mediator is so much better than the old, get this, that it was able to set free from sin those who committed sin under the old covenant. Catch that. The new covenant was so much more effective, so much better, that it was able to set free from sin those who committed sin under the old covenant. Uh, Our favorite theologian for this series has been Edward Fudge, and he explains it this way. By his life and death, his doing, and his dying, Jesus redeemed everyone whom God called to himself under the old covenant. The very people who violated and broke that covenant by transgressions for which the old covenant provided no effective remedy. William MacDonald describes it this way, those under the old covenant knew little or nothing about what Christ would do at Calvary, but God knew. And he reckoned the value of that work to their account when they believed whatever revelation he gave them of himself. It's really a fascinating thing. How much better is the new covenant than the old? The old covenant had no effective remedy for sin. But the new covenant is so effective 
that it saves both those who live under the new and those who lived under the old. Isn't that incredible? You, you want to talk about Jesus is better and Jesus is greater. This demonstrates it right here. It's all about Jesus. The old covenant's about Jesus. The new covenant's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And verses 11 through 23 make the point again that the tabernacle on earth was a copy of the heavenly reality. And the earthly sacrifices were but types that pointed to true and better sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. So there's a lot of great stuff in those verses, and I hope that you will read them. But today our focus is going to be on Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. I think it will be on the screen behind me, and I do want us to try uh, to read this one uh, together. And as we're getting ready to do that, I just saw that Bruce... Casto is here today, and Bruce has had a, a difficult week or two and had surgery, and he's here today. I take it to mean you're doing better. Bruce, we're thankful that God has helped you and that you're doing better. Let's give Bruce a hand uh, today. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Go. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him." Verses 24 through 26 offer a summary of contrast that we've seen throughout Hebrews, especially in recent chapters, and that are also covered in earlier verses of chapter 9. There are three contrasts that are highlighted between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in these verses, all making the point that the new is better than the old, superior to the old, all making the point that Christ is greater than what came before him. Verse 24 says that Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true, but he entered into heaven itself, the true sanctuary. And where the earthly priest only entered the most holy place once a year, Christ now appears for us in God's presence continually, all the time. And so the new is better. Christ is better Verses 25 and 26 contrast the repeated sacrifices that were necessary under the old covenant to Christ once for all sacrifice. Contrast the priests entering the most holy place with blood that was not their own with Christ entering the true sanctuary by virtue of his own precious blood. Let's us know because it was a better sacrifice. It didn't have to repeat, be repeated over and over again. The blood of Christ was a once for all 
sacrifice. The new is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And verse 26 also makes the point that the new covenant doesn't just cover over sins for a year or roll back sins for a year, but the new covenant does away with sin forever. And so these are three important contrasts that all make the point that the new is better, Christ is better, Christ is greater than everything that came before him because everything that came before him was simply pointing to him. And then we come to verses 27 through 28, which is where I want our primary focus to be today. Let me read those to us again. Just as people were destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The life's journey of every single person who has ever born on planet earth is acknowledged here. We see in this, we live, we die, and then judgment. And the writer of Hebrews says that just as it is with us, so it was with Christ. Christ's journey on earth was the same as the rest of us. Birth, and life, then death, we don't often think of this, but then judgment. Jesus walked the same path that we all walk. He was not exempt from any part of the journey that all humans experience. He lived our entire experience, life, death, judgment. Our journey was Christ's journey. He walked the same path of every person before him and the path that every person after him would walk. But he walked it differently. He walked it differently than everyone before him and everyone after him. Same path, different approach, same trip, different plan on how to navigate the trip. We talk about this a lot around here, but here's a brief overview of the life, death, and judgment of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Scripture is clear that Christ lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God. He, he walked the same earth as we all walk. He experienced the same temptations that we all experience, the, the exact same ones. He, he did. But he approached the journey differently than everyone else, where everyone before him and everyone since him has given in to the temptation to sin. Christ did not. He lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God. Everyone before him, everyone since him, has decided that we know better than the creator of life how to live it. We know better than the creator how to get the most out of it. And so we've all ignored the creator. 
and lived life our own way. Jesus was the only one who chose to walk his journey the way the creator of life designed it and wanted it done. Jesus lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God, and because he did that, he was able to die a substitutionary death on behalf of all mankind. As we've heard so much about throughout Hebrews, his death was the once-for-all sacrifice that finally effectively dealt with mankind's sin problem, the debt of sin, the penalty of sin, the bondage to sin. Christ's death, his sacrifice dealt with all of that. And so he lived, he died, and just like all men, just like we will, once he died, his life was judged by God. I can't say it any better than theologian Fudge says it, so let me quote him again on this point. He writes, like all human beings, Christ was judged by God. God examined, inspected, judged the life he had lived, and declared that it pleased him precisely in every respect. To signify his acceptance of Christ's life, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right-hand place of honor in heaven. Christ was judged once for all, never to be judged again. Because God's judgment of Christ's unrepeatable life is also unrepeatable, the outcome of that judgment will never change. Because of Christ's perfect doing and perfect dying in their name, his people approach God on the basis of Christ's life record, and God relates to them accordingly. It's an important line. Christ was judged by God as perfectly pleasing. And the resurrection proves that Christ's life was perfectly pleasing to God. He paid the debt of sin. There was no more debt to be paid. And so there was nothing that could hold him in the grave. I want to draw special attention to that last line of Fudge's explanation. It's an important one. Because of Christ's perfect doing and perfect dying in their name, his people approach God on the basis of Christ's life record. And God relates to them accordingly. Here's what this means. When we choose to trust in Jesus, Christ's journey becomes our journey. We relate to God on the basis of Christ's life record, not our own, and God relates to us on the basis of Christ's life record, not our own. Another way of thinking of this is that we decide, instead of planning our own journey and doing all the work ourselves, making our own decisions about how to best approach this trip called life, that we're going to yield all of the planning and all of the doing to Jesus. And we're just going to rely totally on him and go along for the ride with him. That's what we do. And there are scriptures all through the New Testament that, that say this in different ways, but, but they fundamentally make this point. Here's one. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Catch this next part. For you died. Okay, get this. You died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are hidden with Christ in God. Hidden. We're not what's seen. We're hidden. Romans also tells us about this, and it, it ties it to baptism. It tells us that when we're baptized, we are baptized what? We're baptized into Jesus. Jesus just envelops us. Our, our lives disappear into Jesus. So here's what's happening. When we come to faith in Jesus, our lives are enveloped by Christ. We're in Christ. Together with Christ, we're hidden in God. Our lives are not our own. They belong to Jesus. God looks at us and he relates to us based on being in Christ. In a sense, it's very accurate to say that when God looks at us, what he sees is not us, but Christ. He sees Christ. The song we used to sing at the church, Michelle and I got married in, had this line, He, God, sees me through the blood of Jesus. He only sees me through the blood. And so he sees something different than what I actually am because he's looking at me through the blood of Christ. So again, when God looks at our lives in a sense, he sees Jesus because we're in Jesus. Galatians expresses the same idea in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Here's what Paul wrote. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul acknowledges that his life is not his own. His life is Christ. He doesn't live and relate to God on his own, but only through Christ. He walks his journey through life on the basis of the journey that Christ has already walked. God relates to Paul and to us based on Christ's journey, Christ's life, Christ's death. And so Paul just follows the path Christ has laid out. And when he errs from the path, God continue, and when we err from the path, God continues to relate based on what Christ did. And Paul and us, we continue to relate to God based on what Christ did. It's true for us, the journey of our lives. If we've turned our lives over to Jesus, then we are relying entirely on him for the journey that we are walking. We follow the plan that he's mapped out for us. We hopefully grow in obedience to God, but when we get off track, which we often do, we need to get back on track. But even when we get off track, we get credit for Jesus having walked the journey without getting off track. 
And so our whole approach to our journey is, at least it should be, I'm with Jesus. This whole trip depends on him, not me. We're baptized into Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We've entrusted it all to Jesus. And that faith causes God to relate to us on Christ's merits, not our own. We are the beneficiaries of Christ's sinless life and substitutionary death. And so, in a very real way, Christ's journey becomes our journey. We get credit for Christ's journey. We live by faith in Him. And then we die being hidden in Him. And then we face judgment. And even in judgment, we get the benefit of Christ having been judged by God as perfectly pleasing in every way. That's what imputed righteousness is that Romans talks so much about. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 explain how even in judgment we rely on Christ and explains it this way. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. How? Anybody know? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We get the benefit of God having judged Christ as perfectly pleasing in every way. And so our lives and our deaths are not as much about us as they are about Jesus. Because we're in Him. We are hidden in Him. Even in judgment, we're hidden in Christ. Again, this means that Christ's journey is our journey. When God considers our journey, he considers it based on Christ's journey. He credits Christ's journey as our journey in life, in death, and in judgment. In life, we rely upon Jesus. In death, we rely upon Jesus. And in judgment, we rely upon Jesus in every part of our journey. We rely totally upon Jesus. As we contemplate the journey of our lives, life, death, judgment, the very best approach to it all is to trust it all to Jesus, to put all the responsibility on him, and then just go along for the ride. Because when we do that, our lives aren't about what we do so much as they are about what he's done. God relates to us and we relate to God based on Christ's actions, not our own. It's the only way that our lives, our deaths, and our judgments lead to eternal life. It's the only way. You can't get there on your own. I can't get there on my own. The only way is to put it all on Jesus, rely on him, and go for the ride. Look with me again at verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, 
not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Friends, Jesus Christ is coming again. Do you believe that? Jesus is coming again. And when he comes the next time, the text tells us, it's not going to be to bear sin. That, that work is done. When he comes the next time, it's going to be to complete our salvation. Amen. That is about as close to Pentecostal as we get around here. I, I appreciate the effort that was made. I can't tell you how much. You see, we, we currently live in what theologians call the already but the not yet. The kingdom of God has already come. Sin's curse has already been broken. But not yet in the fullness that it will when Christ returns. You see, right now we are still subject to physical death. It's true that for believers it's simply a passageway into eternal life, but we still face that remnant of the curse that before Christ returns, if he doesn't return in our lifetimes, we each will face physical death. That's, that's a remnant of the curse that still exists. But when Christ comes again, death will be no more. It won't just be that it's a passageway into eternal life. It will be no more. What's already come but not yet in fullness will then arrive in fullness. Christ will bring the fullness of salvation to all who are waiting for him. Are you waiting for him? Like, are you consciously waiting for him? I, I, I can't prove this from the text. Maybe I can, but I didn't take time to figure out if I could prove it from the text. But I think, I'm, I'm suspicious that what the text has in mind is those who are consciously waiting for him. Because here's what I believe. I believe that if we've been fully regenerated, if we've been truly, if we've been truly regenerated, come to life spiritually, we're consciously waiting for him. Like we look forward to that. Like that's, that's an exciting thing for us. Are you a person who looks forward to the coming of Christ? Again, I think it's a mark of a regenerated life. A person who has truly come to faith has rested all of their hope in Jesus. So I don't see how that's possible if you're not also resting your hope in Christ's return and the future that awaits those who trust in Him, the future that will arrive when Christ returns. You see, the early believers, they didn't have a lot of the comforts that we have that can make it sometimes where our attitude becomes, you know, I want to go to heaven when Christ returns. But I'd really prefer that a whole bunch of stuff happen between now and then. I'd like to go on some more vacations. I'd like to 
you know, whatever it is, whatever list of things you haven't done that you'd like to do in life, I'd like to do all those. And then right before I'm about to take my last breath, that's when I want Jesus to come back. That's kind of the attitude I think many of us have because in spite of all of our whining about how life is difficult, really, there's a lot of good stuff in life. We, we like it pretty well. But the early believers had a different experience than we have, and they faced real persecution. And so early believers comforted themselves with the knowledge that Christ would someday return. Is the fact that we're waiting on Christ's return something that gets any of the bandwidth of your brain? It's a good question to ask yourself. Do I reflect on the return of Christ? Do I give any thought, any of my brain power to thinking about the return of Christ? I, I would suggest that as believers, the return of Christ should occupy some of our thoughts. It should be something that we think about and, and we look forward to. There's a lot of great stuff in life. It distracts us. There's also a lot of rough stuff in this fallen world that we live in. And here's the truth. What's coming? The future that Jesus is bringing is so much better than anything that we experience now. If you live the best life, that can ever be experienced on earth, the future that Jesus is bringing is better. It's better. And so we should look forward to that. Here's how 1 Corinthians 2.9 says it. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Isn't that a wonderful promise? It's a wonderful promise. So I want us to be encouraged today with these truths. If you have trusted in Christ, your life is in Him. You are hidden with Christ in God. And for those hidden with Christ in God, our journey is leading to a glorious future. And so don't grow weary. Don't loosen your grip on Jesus. Don't drift away. Don't turn away, but hold on to Jesus. A glorious future is coming. Because we've trusted everything to Him. Because we rely fully on Him for life, for death, for judgment. Because of that, there's a glorious future that He's bringing to us when He comes the second time. Let's stand. 